0: My reflection for us today, uh, rather than a discussion this morning, is um, I just want to comment uh, briefly on some things I've learned lately uh, about a famous Jesus teaching from the Sermon on the Mount, Turn the Other Cheek, which no doubt you've heard that phrase before. It's pretty ingrained in popular culture, but there is more under the surface of that phrase than many people might realize. So I'm going to be drawn from a couple of sources today uh, that if you're curious of reading more, you can find out about. Uh, one source I'm going to be reading uh, from is a guy named Walter Wink, who was a white American progressive biblical scholar and activist. Uh, he died in 2012, uh, but wrote pretty prolifically for uh, many years. And he's very important to the story of LGBTQ inclusion in churches. So perhaps that's uh, something that's really important to you. This would be somebody who uh, you could look back and see in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, somebody who was speaking before the uh, things were popular to be said. Uh, and then second, I'm going. To be drawing from uh, a theologian named Andrew Sung Park, who is a Korean American theologian, uh, particular in the world of liberation theology and open and relational theologies. Two things that we talk about a fair amount here. Uh, and this, uh, Mr. Park is still writing, and his thoughts we're going to be returning to actually in the coming months for other messages at Brownline. But uh, I want to read the teaching that you all may be familiar with, uh, or maybe we have to refresh our minds uh, from Jesus, and then we'll we'll unpack it according to these two awesome thinkers, uh, Walter Wink and Andrew Sung Park. So the passage goes like this: If you'll remember says you have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth but i say to you this is jesus talking do not set yourself against an evildoer but if anyone strikes you on the right cheek turn the other also and if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat give your cloak as well and if anyone forces you to go one mile go also The second mile that is Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew chapter five. Now, the thing that Jesus is directing us away from is, of course, retribution, retaliation cycles of revenge, because, of course, those will never end, right? The the saying that we've all heard many times, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, right? Like, that feels deeply true. This kills our whole souls when we demand for the killing of others' souls. And this this is like a higher calling that seizes a lot of people, right? Like, it's uh, it grabs us, and yet it's really hard. Uh, how do we, in the face of evil, in the face of grief, in the face of feeling hurt, injustice. How do we not become just like our enemies? Uh, how many movies and and TV shows or stories situate us in this space that Jesus talks about? I, as a Marvel Cinematic Universe nerd, recently watched the most uh, the the big Spider Man movie, and it totally did this really well. Situates in that in that place of how do you not become just like your enemy when you are so. Uh, full of grief or anger or, or, or uh, righteous, like anger at uh, injustice. How do you not become just like your enemy? Uh, so that's awesome. I think that's really great. I, what I really want to focus on, though, is what is the alternative thing Jesus is encouraging from retaliation with these three examples he gives? Turn the other cheek let somebody take your cloak also, go the extra mile. These familiar phrases, right? They're ingrained in our popular culture. Uh, usually they're understood to be something like kill them with kindness. I wonder if anyone's like, you know, heard that kind of phrase, right? It's just not always a bad phrase. That's That's good. But I think when faced with true evil or injustice, kill them with kindness can feel like it falls a little bit short. Like it's just, Kind of encouraging people who are victims to become better victims and i wonder if you've ever felt that i wonder if you'd be like yeah but to this teaching well according to this uh one uh, writer that i mentioned earlier walter wink this is where learning a bit of context about the first century jewish customs and norms that jesus is speaking into uh, help us to see that more was being said here. So to set the stage, what I want us to imagine is when Jesus was speaking those words, he, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus is addressing the masses in this uh, town called Galilee. And the masses are Jewish people because this is a town where the Jewish diaspora live. And they are a, a largely oppressed people. They are under the rule of Romans. And so there's lots of, lots of occupying Romans there. They don't necessarily live there but there's soldiers and officials there who have all of the power. And then there are also some fellow Jews who are more powerful than them and more privileged than them because they're in some way they've made agreements with the Romans. So they they might be complicit with some of the injustice that the Roman Empire is doing or they might just be like, you know, trying to you know like pay off something and so they've become a tax collector for the Romans. And they're actually a Jewish person, but there there's a lot of animosity between the Jewish masses and these Jewish people with more privilege. And so Jesus is talking to those oppressed group. He's 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 uh, he's he's gathered a bunch of people around him. People are following him and listening to him. And Jesus says these three things. And so let me unpack one at a time because there's a lot going on here. So first, turn the other cheek. Now the fact that we begin turn the other cheek, this this uh, encouragement from Jesus, with what is said to be a slap on the right cheek is actually of utmost importance here. Because a slap on the right cheek, if you're facing me, a slap on the right cheek might mean a backhand with the right hand, if you were to slap me, or it might mean a slap with the left hand, if you were facing me with a slap. And either of those, a backhand with the right hand or a left-handed slap with the front of the hand, would be a sharp insult in Jewish custom and actually we still have some of this in our culture today, a backhanded slap backhand. It's not really about injury. It's about insult, right? We, we're familiar with that, and then in this culture, because the left hand was considered unclean, as it was used to clean yourself after relieving yourself, a left-handed slap with with any the back or the front would have been considered an insult. And so, in power dynamics, the slap was used for humiliation. A slaveholder might slap a slave. A husband might slap a wife. A parent might slap their child. A Roman might slap a Jew. However as the custom went, if a superior struck an inferior with the flat side of the right hand on the left cheek, so that we haven't talked about that one. You've talked about backhand on the right cheek or a left-handed slap on the right cheek. But if if you took your right hand, the clean hand in that culture, and just tapped on the left side, that meant an end of humiliation. And we still sort of have this custom in our contemporary culture. Like I'm The way I can imagine it is like a scene from The Godfather or The Sopranos where like the patriarch of the family, you know, is just chewed out the nephew who's just kind of going wild. And then they say to them, you know, I think the message has been received and they gently take the right hand and say, we're good, you go. And for some reason, I just imagine Italian mob bosses when I do that. But that's, that's my imagination to try to like, it, it's, it, there's still some presence of this kind of, these kind of customs and norms in our own culture. It's still condescending, the slap, right? But it communicates, okay, the humiliation is over. Right hand, front of the right hand on the left cheek. That's the end. So in light of this, I wonder if you can see where Jesus is going. Jesus telling the inferiors in his society, when they're slapped on the right cheek, Okay? It's going to be an insult. If you're slapped on the right cheek, it's either a backhand from the right or a left. If you are insulted, what Jesus says is, turn the left cheek to be slapped as well. And this is not a passive surrender. In the words of Andrew Sung Park, it is a demand for the end of dehumanization. It's actually an insistence on equality. I'm not waiting for you as the supposedly powerful person to end this story. I am saying I demand that you end this. I demand for equality, I'm I am, I am demanding that as the inferior person, I'm not going to let you set the terms. This interpretation of turn the other cheek is as resistance. And it's actually more consistent with the fuller picture of Jesus's ministry. It, there's actually a, an instance in Jesus's ministry recorded in John chapter 18 where Jesus is struck and he doesn't passively turn the other cheek. He's struck by a policeman and he says, if I have spoken wrongly, testify to the wrong. But if I've spoken rightly, why do you strike me? So there we are, Jesus showing us that what he's actually about here is resistance and not just passively surrendering and turn the other cheek. There is more going on with this phrase. And the other two, this take your cloak also or go the extra mile also have some really interesting things going on beneath the surface. So. Take your cloak also. When somebody has has sued you for your coat, give them your cloak as well. This refers to a common Jewish practice of a creditor who would pawn a debtor's garment as a pledge. Oh, you're making a promise to me as somebody who I've loaned money? Okay, well, I'm gonna pawn your uh, a garment or I'm gonna pawn something that you own. Not unlike collateral in our economy today. But Jesus' reference to this is a predatory version of this practice because it says the creditor is suing the debtor for their garment. Think about that, a rich person suing a poor person do you, I mean like that's that's predatory. That's the definition of predatory, right? So the next thing we need to do is distinguish between a coat and a cloak. Now, we use the word coat today to refer to like the thing that we put on after everything else. A coat in 1st century Palestine is actually considered an undergarment. And then the cloak is the outer garment. That's the thing that you put on uh, uh, afterwards to stay warm. And this is important because in the Jewish law, in the in Moses' law, concern, which is very concerned with the plight of the poor, it prohibits a creditor from pawning a debtor's outer garment, their cloak, overnight. Because if you did that, the owner of that blanket might be poor and might need it as a blanket. There is reference to this in the book of Exodus. There is reference to this in the book of Deuteronomy. Multiple references that say you cannot uh, take a cloak from a poor person if you are a creditor. If you do that, you are going against the Jewish law. But this law does not apply to the undergarment or the coat. So the, a predator, uh, uh, like a, a, a predatory creditor can still go after a coat and stay within the Jewish law. And so I, what I imagine here in uh, a, a, a parallel to today is like rich corporations finding loopholes so they don't have to pay taxes. This is a powerful person who who wants to get what they want and they decide, oh, OK, well, I can't take somebody's cloak because that would make me a bad Jewish person. So instead, I'm just going to sue you for your coat. Andrew Sung Park talks about it this way that Jesus, the brilliant response from Jesus. He says this in response to such a calculated demand, Jesus teaches the defender to give away both the undergarment and the outer garment. This means parading out of the court, completely naked taboo in Israel, taboo today, right? However, the shame of nakedness in this case would not fall on the person without clothing. But on the one who caused the person to go naked, this act of disrobing would unmask the cruelty and the creditor and the entire system that oppresses the poor debtor. Walter Wink describes it this way: This is a courageous move on the uh, on the part of a poor person, it, uh, sort of like saying, "You want my robe? Here, take everything. Now you've got everything except my body. Is that what you'll take next?" And I can just imagine these sorts of words being used in protest today. You have everything. Do you want my body? Is that what you'll take next? What a brilliant, courageous encouragement that, uh, that I think Jesus is driving it. And finally, one last, because I just think it's, it's, it's powerful to see all three. Go the extra mile. While, while we, we just talked about let them take your cloak, which is a way for an oppressed Jew to respond to a Jewish person who was oppressing them. They were subject to the law of, the, of, uh, of Moses for their reputation. Go the extra mile seems to be a situation where Jesus is encouraging oppressed Jews to respond to an oppressive Roman. An oppressive Roman wouldn't care about the Jewish law. That doesn't matter to their reputation. But what does matter is Roman law, the empire, what do they say? And so uh, what we learn about the context here from Mr. Wink is that Roman soldiers occupying a space like Galilee had the legal right to impose forced labor on their subjected peoples. So they could say, here, carry my bags one mile to the next town, I need you to do that for me. And a subjected person like a Jew would have to comply. However, to do this, soldiers did need permits from their ruling officers and permits just like today in our government are cumbersome to get so evidently this right was abused all the time soldiers would demand that somebody would carry their bags without a permit and and just taking advantage of their position wink suggests that Jesus idea to say to his uh, folks carry a soldier's bag a second mile is a provocation it's like it's like begging the question that puts the abusive soldier in an uncomfortable position, you know? Like suddenly we're we're asking questions like what is what is this civilian doing going an extra mile with the soldier's back? Is 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 the civilian insulting the soldier's strength? Is trying to get the soldier disciplined? Will the civilian file a complaint? This could lead to a an uncomfortable position where the Roman soldier has to awkwardly plead with somebody who is supposedly their lesser to return their baggage, a total flip of the power dynamic. Once again, Jesus encouraging a resistance that is not just surrender, it's not just let somebody take advantage of you, but it is something that is meant to expose power dynamics and people taking advantage of other people. So... I want to try to fully translate this to like, how can, how how does this affect our lives? Because I think there's a lot being said here if we're being encouraged to resist while not retaliating. Uh, A pastor that uh, I read once suggests a framework for trying to live by higher values and uh, like like refusing to retaliate. How, How do we not go with an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? Jesus uh, uh, encourages lots of these things. So, uh, So what's the framework that we can kind of use to understand? And so the framework is this, it's three tiers. First there's exploitative, then there's ethical, and then there is redemptive. And the idea is that unfortunately, there are many in the world who operate on the exploitative level. And often those people have power. They exploit others because they can. And maybe power even you know does that to us. We become drunk with power and we exploit people. Now, the next stage is ethical, the next step up. And fortunately, this pastor argues that actually most of the world we think operates in an ethical way. And that's wonderful, that we, we should feel thankful that most of the world is not exploitative, great. But there is a third way that uh, this pastor argues that is redemptive. And the idea here would be Jesus's call is redemptive. It is beyond just ethical. So I want to suggest is that obviously there's exploitative retaliation out there, right? Like when the powerful operate with eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we we see that and it's terrible and we all want to call it out. And so I kind of want to set that aside for a second as something we obviously all must oppose. But I wonder if, In the age of the internet, there's also a version of retaliation that we sort of passively accept because it's not exploitative and it's arguably ethical. In the age of the internet, we can refuse to retaliate physically, which is great, but we have such an available avenue to go after some of the thrill that retaliation gives us online because covered by the internet's anonymity, we can resort to shame, insult, cruelty, Feeding the revenge monster, justifying our hurting of another uh, because we were hurt, and usually with very little consequence or feedback. This kind of retaliation is definitely not wielding oppressive force. It is definitely not turning to violence, and that's a really important distinction. But it is perhaps what Jesus addresses elsewhere in the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, You have heard it said that murder opens you up to judgment. I say anger and insult open you up to judgment. In our culture, this sort of retaliation, I think, is an acceptable way to blow off steam, so long as you're not inciting exploitative retaliation. And that's true. Actually, in a lot of ways, I agree. I think you can make an ethical argument about that. I don't think this is bad. I think we all do need to blow off steam and we do need to find the right places where we can totally, fully dump out how we're really feeling without center. I think we need to find those things. But I'm drawn to this idea that in the public square, when we're not just with our inner circle, I'm drawn to this idea that there's something beyond merely ethical behavior that Jesus urges us toward beyond just being ethical, maybe there is something about being redemptive, and that is a greater call. I wonder if Jesus has turned the other cheek words, when understood as resistance, are a model for being redemptive. They're a model for threading the needle that feels so hard to right now in America post-Trump. How do we thread the needle, resist but not retaliate? Or it's, it, it's the way to thread the needle in just like that universally hard thing for all of us in our personal lives but particularly when it comes to societal injustice how do we resist but not retaliate or if we're privileged how do we res- resist in solidarity with those who are oppressed but not retaliate how do we respond to injustice in an active way but not become like the thing we are opposing in the process it is so hard but I think that these three examples for Jesus are great because it's almost like Jesus is saying there are ways. There are ways to do it. This is really hard. It's not gonna be obvious. It's not gonna be the immediate thing that your mind jumps to. But if you catch my drift, it's, he's, he's implicitly speaking to his crowd. Do you catch my drift? You can turn the other cheek, demand equality. Take, oh, you, they're gonna take your coat? Let, make them take your cloak also. Put them in the position of shame rather than you. They're gonna make you walk a mile, walk the extra mile. Put them in the uncomfortable position. It's time for them to have that experience, not just you. Andrew Sung Park, our, our theologian we're reading from, as a minoritized person himself in America, he puts it these ways. Here are some examples. You can assert your dignity. You can refuse to accept the inferior position. You can expose the injustice in the system. You can meet force with cleverness or humor. You can break the cycle of humiliation. You can deprive the oppressor of a situation where a show of force is effective. You can be willing to accept the penalty of breaking unjust norms or laws. All of these are active resistance, and none of them are retaliation. This is threading the needle, these examples. Let me rephrase Park's suggestions for the privileged person who's seeking to resist in solidarity with the oppressed. You can assert the dignity of a person or people that a family member or coworker has defamed. You can refuse to treat someone as though they are in an inferior position. You can amplify voices that expose injustice in our systems. You can call out force if you see a fellow privileged person wield it. You can refuse to humiliate other people. Even when privilege or power have nothing to do with the situation. You can simply show I am not okay with humiliation as a weapon. I will never be okay with that. You can stand in the way if an oppressor attempts to show force to an an oppressed person. And you can be willing also to accept the penalty of breaking unjust norms or law rather than just throwing money at a problem or taking advantage of the benefit of the way you look or the way you talk. All of these are, again, active resistance, and none of them are retaliation. They thread that needle of turning the other cheek that Jesus talks about. So, I wanna close by saying one last thing after kind of marinating in familiar phrases that maybe we don't often read with such a bite, but they have a bite to them. I wanna close by saying that This is calling you to higher values. As we often see when we read things like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, there are many things that we might talk about at church that are calling us to higher values. Many things you might talk about in many of the communities that you're in, the communities that you're a part of, the justice things that you are oriented toward that call you to higher values. And they are hard, right? That's by definition, they're hard. You, none of us, I, you, Anyone you know, the greatest person you know, the most intentional person you know, cannot pull these things off by conviction and willpower. Personally, I default to just letting people walk all over me, usually. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you default to that. Or maybe you default to the other side of this higher value. You fight fire with fire. We all kind of default to one side of these sorts of higher values or another. It's really hard to thread the needle the way that we all want to. And so my encouragement is do not tie your worthiness as a human being to whether or not you can live up to such a conviction or a higher calling like this. It is so good to be grabbed by higher callings, but you cannot tie your worthiness as a human being to whether you live them out. You are all awesome people, but eventually even the best of us will run out of gas or inevitably make a mistake or have regrets. So do not tie your worthiness to this. And yet, we can still look to them. We can we can let them call us out to the next thing in in our story. We can let them call us to the behaviors that we want to be known by and not tie our worthiness to them. I've spent so much time, I think, believing that I should be able to live up to my values. And when I don't or when I struggle, I must be a bad person. But Jesus is brilliant, not just on these like, How do you resist but not retaliate front? Jesus is also brilliant on the how do you call yourself to higher values, but not hate yourself. That is also Jesus's brilliance. And so I have, for me personally, I have to come back to some sort of spiritual element in my life. If I do not do that, I am inevitably going to be the only thing that can, that can decide who I am or what I'm made of is whether or not I live up to my values. But if there is something more to that, if there is a piece of God that lives inside me and lives inside every single human being in the world, we are valuable in and of ourselves. Should we strive to try to live out those higher values? Absolutely. And we do so by returning to that source that gives us our worth. We are lovable. We are lovable because we are made in the image of God, not because we are perfect not because every time we feel inspired or convicted by some good idea or justice cause, we live up to it perfectly. The only way that we can do that is by really truly being held in a place to say like, I I am lovable. I can be refueled when I'm out of gas because there is a God that hasn't turned me away. I can go to my community even when I feel regret because they also will love me even so. I wonder how far or how close each of us might feel to being in such a place this morning. I do think that that is the rub. That is where the rubber meets the road for this higher calling from Jesus or any other. Do we feel truly lovable in the spaces we're in? If not, how can we surround ourselves with more of a community that can show us that? How can we shift our belief so that we are looking to a God of love and not a God of judgment? That is where we experience success in these sorts of things or not. So let me pray along those lines for us this morning as I close up this weekend's reflection. Well, God, this morning I thank you for these words from Matthew chapter five and how how brilliant they are when we can unpack them. And for, for any of us who just like on a head level, just feel excited when we encounter a new interpretation of something or like realize the brilliance of something and that just like activates us. I pray that that would happen for us and we would feel activated, we'd feel excited, we'd feel filled up by that experience. That would be really good. But then in the ways that whatever it is that we're focused on, whether it's this passage or whether we're, we're grateful for something else, somebody else said, it wasn't Vince, but it was like, it was somebody at work or it was somebody I follow on Instagram or it was somebody else during this week that was just, oh man, they said that thing and it really felt true. And I was just drawn into like deeper convictions and I wanted to be a good person. But oh, so often then the balloon pops because we had a bad day. Or the balloon pops because we didn't sleep well. And the next day we're just too exhausted. And that conviction that we felt so high on the day before is just gone. Now, are we bad people when that happens? God, speak to us, show us that we are not. Speak to us in the places that are are, just feel so torn because we long to live by higher values, but. Everything about our culture screams at us that if we don't do it, we're phonies, we're frauds. And then we feel like we have to prove ourselves by like posting the right thing on Facebook or something. It's just madness. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why do we do this to ourselves? I pray for an experience of love for each of us now. I pray that we would feel loved by you, God, And that you would call to mind now for each of us, the people in our lives who truly love us, who will show us that refueling, rejuvenating, healing love that we so desperately need to live up to our higher values. We will all experience regret. None of us will do this perfectly. But we all can also find what we need because we don't live in a world of scarcity when it comes to relationship and love. There is enough to go around. I pray as we enter into another week, no doubt we will feel another round of, you know, convicted by this or that thing, or charged by this or that idea, or called by this or that higher value, whether it's, you know, turn the other cheek, resist but don't retaliate, or something else. No doubt we'll feel it again I pray that we would feel able to draw to mind quickly, God, how you truly operate, that you are a God of love, that encourages us and fills us up to follow those higher callings when they come across us, and that accepts us when we are unable to do so, that refuels us when we are unable to do so, and dusts us off so that we can return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.